We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, We'll start in verse 4. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. You will build me a house to dwell in. I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from the following the sheep, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off the enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of earth, and I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and I will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over them no more, or or my people, Israel." Over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up the offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. We can just stop there, amen? I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with a rod of men, with stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom put away from you before. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be an everlasting established forever. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. This is God's word. Father, we come to your word with fear and trembling, knowing that it has the authority to mold and to shape our lives into the image of Christ. And so we ask, Lord, for nothing more than that. May we come to your word with holy reverence of who you are. And may the meditations of my mouth and my heart be pleasing to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. I wanted to get him the gift I never had. Now, if you know me, um, I, one of my love languages is gift giving. But I also love to give gifts. So that's how I express my love towards people. So my, my kids constantly probably have too much love. You know what I mean? Uh, it's like outflowing from their closet kind of love. Um, but I wanted to get my son on his third birthday the gift that I could never have. And we went and we looked and we found it. It was the remote control car that you sit in and you drive. You know what I'm talking about? It wasn't the Land Rover thing, you know, or the Mercedes thing, but some of you guys, you know what I'm talking about, you 90s kids out there, the car that you sit in and you drive. We found it. We were much more excited at the moment than probably he was when the gift came out. 
and he was about to unwrap it, and much more excitement came. And he ripped open the gift like, you know, any three-year-old would. And he, he actually got out the toy. We got it out. We got it working. And he's playing with it. He's driving and he's doing what I always wanted to do as a three- and four-year-old is to drive the little car anywhere I wanted, over the flowers and over the plants, all the fun stuff. And I, I turn around and it was at a birthday party. And so I go get a drink or something and, and I'm talking with people and I, I look back He's not driving anymore. He's in the box. He's playing with the box. Parents, do you guys know what I'm talking about? You know, I am deeply persuaded that this is a picture of what we struggle with the most. There are many Christians who have been given the gift of redemption but are content to play in the box. We want the fruit and the benefits of the Savior but not the cruciform lifestyle that the gospel calls us into to follow the Savior. We're content with the things that the Christian life brings and we play in the box but we're not receiving the gift, the gift of the Savior the gift of the cruciform lifestyle. Or for some of us, we want the benefits of the Savior without the Savior. And so, or maybe for you, it's, it's easy to be confident, and maybe you're like this. I, I've struggled with this myself. Maybe it's easy for you to be confident in your eternal destiny and yet so insecure in your present reality. Why is this? Why is it that we have as apprentices of Jesus, the gift of redemption, and yet we're so content to stay in the box. I wrote down a couple reasons that maybe this could be, and and if you allow me, I'd love to read them. Maybe it's God knows what's inside of me, and so why would he bless me? Has anyone felt that before? We don't receive the gift of our limits. We have limitations, but we don't want to receive the gift of those. We want to keep pushing. We want to keep bringing more to God. Or maybe for some of us, it's we like the box too much. You guys know what I'm talking about? We want to enjoy the blessings of salvation without obedience, right? Having Christ as Savior, but not at least not yet as Lord. We're fake humble. Anyone know what fake humble is? I'm too messy, God, you can't use me, kind of humble, right? We're fake humble. We don't understand our union with Christ, whether it's unconfessed sin or living a casual Christian life. If Christ remains outside of us, what has he done for humanity remains useless to us. And so in other words, we have no true union with God. Or maybe sin just seems too strong. For some of you, the the battle of sin just feels stronger than the victory of God. I don't know what it is for you, but the hope of the story that we're about to read today and what we see in the life of Jesus and in the New Testament is Jesus doesn't start his ministry by blowing the trumpets of victory. He doesn't start his ministry by blowing the trumpets of divine power. 
What I love, and, and, and uh, this week Jackie Hill Perry pointed, pointed this out for us, what I love is that God begins his ministry, Jesus begins his ministry by pointing out human weakness. By pointing out human weakness. And this is our story. That God in his infinite love and grace responds to David's limitations with the grander narrative, the the grander arc of scripture, and God reveals a better plan. And it's our limitations that we'll actually see in David's life, what I hope we can see for our lives, it's in our limitations that actually we see God's, becomes God's greatest asset for his glory and his power to be revealed through us and into the world. So verse one, the story starts. David, and if you know anything about 2 Samuel, uh, the book is, 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 a, is just full of action. If you're an action movie guy like me, you love this book. It's, it's, it's full of war and bloodshed and, and just, just the brokenness of humanity all over the place. But we come to chapter 7 and there seems to be a break. And we read in verse 1. Now when King David in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all the surrounding enemies. He was given rest. What this tells us is there is something bigger going on. At this point, David had settled into his kingship over Israel. Most of his rule was, was, as I said earlier, characterized by conflict and bloodshed and war. For David to rest, it's not just he clocked out for the day and it's, it's his time to rest. David and the Israelites had enemies who, as we've been talking about, have persisted from all sides trying to conquer them. And some even wanted to wipe them off the face of the earth. And in fact, if you turn the page to 2 Samuel 8, we won't do that today. But if you look um, at the account of Almighty God just spouting out the victories of David and his army. It's, It's we defeated this army. We beat this foe. We got this win here. These people died there. David's life is a life that cries out for a savior it's alive David's life does not for one second hide the brokenness of humanity and the Lord graced him with rest now as I was studying this week I got really nerdly excited I shared this with Heath uh, this week as well and so he I think hopefully he's at least ready for it um, some of these cool connections here. Um, but the word rest, all right, just let me geek out for a minute. Is that cool with you guys? The word rest here is important because if you jump to Genesis 8, verse 4, and I'll read it for you. It should be on the screen here. In the seventh month, on the seventh day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Arat. Okay, all right. It's important because that word rest is the same word used in verse 1 for rest. Okay, hold on. All right, here we go. Before God promised not to destroy humanity, 
and sends the symbol of the rainbow to set into motion, what, 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 what is happening here is God is setting up in chapter 7 the same thing that's happening in the life of Noah before the Noahic covenant is set out before Noah and his family and the promise of God is set forth, he mimics what we're all headed to in the new creation and the new earth and that is rest. And he gives them rest and then he gives them the promise. And what we're seeing here is that David is given rest by God before God then sets into motion his promises in the Davidic covenant. It's important because Sabbath is a day without end, an eternal rest in which humanity is invited to share. And what God is doing is he's mimicking his design. And what this tells us about the promise of promises of God is we are headed towards rest. And he's experiencing that same rest that Noah experienced before God set into motion the promises of God. So David's resting, and he's meditating on God, and he's looking around at his surroundings, and he says, he says to Nathan, Man, I, I we got this this massive palace, this massive house, but yet, and he looks over, and I imagine, you know, he looks over at the tent, and he thinks the God of the cosmos, here I am in this beautiful house, this beautiful palace, and he looks over, and he says, the God of the cosmos is living in a tent. Look at verse, verse two. The king said to Nathan, the prophet, see now I dwell in a house of cedar. And so we know it's a beautiful home. It's massive. It's huge. But the ark of God dwells in a tent. The ark of God that holds the glory of God, the presence of God, is in a tent. And David, concerned over the anomaly that exists in Jerusalem, draws Nathan's attention to it. David dwells in a house of cedar, a well-constructed palace made of from durable, high-quality timber, while the ark is housed in a tent. That tent probably is referring to goatskin or some sort of fabric that's enclosing that tent. Now, there's some play on words here. And David, for the word house, he's using the Hebrew word uh, beya, which, which actually means temple. And so literally, David is saying, I'm in a temple, and look, God is in a tent. I'm in a temple, and yet God is living in a tent. I don't know about you, but I can relate to David so much here. You notice David is, is resting, and he can't help but to think, okay, how do I take action? Any, anyone out there like me? Yeah, yeah. What can I do for God? He's resting, but he needs to do something. And notice Nathan didn't say, thus say the Lord. It just says Nathan said, that sounds great, king. Let's do it. And he says in verse 3, Nathan said to the king, go and do with all your heart. The Lord is with you. And he's a prophet. So we know that the, the whole thus saith the Lord formula, you know, that we see for, for prophets should have been in there. But it's not. And so we know that Nathan is, is just with David and saying, yeah, that's, that sounds like good intent, good idea. We should do that. To them, it makes sense. And what we'll see in a minute is they don't have 
an accurate theology, an accurate, an accurate picture of God, an accurate understanding of the story of redemption. Their intentions are good, but in the midst of needing to take action, they miss the story. Their story becomes too narrow and too small. I think so many of us are, are, are afraid to even attempt doing something for God because we're, we're afraid of saying the wrong thing. And so we, we, we don't. But notice what I love about this is the kindness of God in this story. Notice God doesn't give David a guilt trip. He clarifies the bigger story at work. The better plan. The plan that David wants, but he doesn't know he, doesn't know he wants it yet. Look at verse four. That same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servants, thus says the Lord. So now we know God is speaking. Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? It's a question. Like, really? You're gonna build me a house? This is, this is what God's saying. I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent from my dwelling in all the places where I have moved, all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? And he's saying, he's saying to Nathan, ultimately to David, he's saying, have I ever asked for you to build me a house, David? Have I ever asked you to build me a house? God is saying to David, why would you build me a house? Do you remember when I was in Israel, with Israel in Egypt, and I stayed mobile? I want a relationship, not your accommodations. In other words, God is saying, you building me a house, David, will keep me away from my purposes to stay mobile and in relationship with my children. That word house in the Hebrew word, bayet, means house, house built. It's, 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 a, it's a family. It's, it's, it's referring to a house used for someone's family here. And it's a special Hebrew word. It's the same word God uses to tell Noah to bring his entire household into the ark. So in order to understand the plan of God, you need to understand the covenants of God. This is a family story. God is gathering a people to himself of Israel and now today the church. Because, and the reason the covenants are so important is because they advance the story of God. They advance the story of God. And this is, this is, this is what they're meant to do, that to reveal the love and, and promise-keeping character of God. I love what Patrick Schreiner says in his book Covenant, and you know what it means, you know what book you're reading. Uh, we can't truly understand the scriptures if we don't understand the covenants God made with his people. So what's a covenant? Well, a covenant is defined as follows. A covenant is a chosen relationship in, two, in which two parties make binding promises to each other. It's, it's an official set of promises that define a relationship. It's the, it's the original DR. Anyone define a relationship? No, the joke worked way better in my head. Okay, that's cool. Uh, tough crowd, that's all right. Uh, I'm just kidding. The word covenant in 2 Samuel 7, and there, you don't, you don't see it. You don't see the word covenant in 2 Samuel 7, but, sh but it is found in the context. 
The covenant nature of what God pledges to David is clear that his dynasty, as we read earlier, and kingdom will never end. It will forevermore be everlasting. This is another way of saying that the promises to Abraham of universal blessing in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 3, that I'm going to bless you to be a blessing to the nations, Abraham. This saying that the promise to Abraham will be realized to the son of David. The, the promise that, that Abraham's descendants will outnumber number the stars on the earth. A Davidic king will be the means by which the promise of land and offspring and worldwide blessing will be realized. And God promised that Abraham would have a great name. And the same thing here we see in David. I love this. Look at this. Genesis chapter 12 says this, I will make you a great nation. And this is the, the, the Abrahamic covenant, okay? I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Now therefore, thus shall say to my servant David. It's the word of the Lord that came, is found in, earlier in Genesis chapter 15, and it occurs in this connection. It will be used extensively later on in the prophetic literature for communication of the divine message of a prophet. This formula, this prophetic formula, draws attention to the authenticity of Nathan's announcement. And it introduces the longest divine speech recorded since the day of Moses, it's setting up to be a covenant, a promise. The messenger formula, thus says the Lord. And if you look at 2 Samuel chapter seven, and if verse eight and 10, it says this, I took you from the, path, from the pasture. You guys remember God sent Abram away to a land also from the following of the sheep, from the following of the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people. And I have been with you wherever you went. And I have cut all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name. Does that sound familiar? Like the name of the great ones of the earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel. And I will plant them. The covenantal nature of what God is pledging to David is clear. His dynasty, his kingdom will never end. God promised to Abraham that he would protect him from his enemies, and we see the same thing here with David. The house for God is less about making accommodations for the king. It's about the king providing and dwelling and moving and in relationship with his people. And this is the, the future arc of the story of redemption. What I love about this, this idea of the future arc of the story of redemption is God is moving in the direction to restore all things to himself. And this story is just catapulting us to Jesus. And what I love about this, and what you'll see is it's, um, it's kind of a 
backwards J, but it's 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 the rising and it's the it's the dying and rising that we see in the in the in the arc of the story of of redemption. We see and in creation there's the blessing that God is in shalom with his people and he's dwelling and he's moving and, and the, there's perfect harmony within God and, and Adam and Eve in the garden. But the fall comes and 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 they're separated from that blessing. And then in Exodus, the desert journeys happen, and they're free from slavery, from the grips of sin, from the grips of Pharaoh. And then we see in Leviticus, which is such a key, key book, restoring the presence by, by sacrifice and by holiness. And it's this idea of who shall dwell with God? How are we going to get there again? And we see how sacrifice and holiness brings us back to be with our king. And then in 2 Samuel 7 in our chapter today, we see the world worldwide promise of blessing to Abraham realized through through David. If you look at verse 8, it says, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from the following of the sheep, that you should be prince over the people of Israel And I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies before you, and I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones. God is building a better house. David's focus has been on what he might do for God, but really what matters is that what God has done for David. I took you. God says, I have been with you, verse 8. I cut off all your enemies, and I will make your name great. And then in verse 11, he says, I will be the one to make you a house. Notice he doesn't say, I will build you a house. He says, I will make you a house, a a house, a family house, a household for your family. The same word for make in Hebrew also is used to describe God's acts of creation. It's the same word that we see when God spreads out the waters and and brings light and and day. And it's the same word there used in Genesis 1. So God is creating out of essentially the ashes. God is making us into a family. In other words, you could literally read this as the maker is the one who is going to make the forever family house or a dynasty for his people. And this is why trying to do anything in our own effort is so contrary to the gospel. Obedience is never first. God's grace is first. Verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will rise up your offspring after you and I shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. So the question is, okay, yes, God is building a better house. How is he gonna fix broken people? We don't ask broken people to rebuild. Amen? God says in verse 13 and 16, ye shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, and this is, this is talking about Solomon, so David's son, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. 
but my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. I will raise up, God says, an offspring. In other words, the rule of David will last forever. The kingdom of God is building through his family tree and will be a dynasty that lives forever. And God's people will never come to an end. God is building a better house. And I love the contrast here between Solomon's kingdom and, and, and David's kingdom. And we see that throughout verses 13 and 16. But it's this idea that, David, your kingdom is everlasting. Your, your kingdom is the way of obedience. Saul's kingdom is the way of brokenness that comes to an end. It's the way of rebellion. In other words, God's determined purpose is that sin and rebellion will not have the final say. And God is saying from the line of David, this is how God will deal with broken people. This is how God will deal with our sin. Who will, he'll conquer it. And the reason that we get stuck in the box of casual Christianity is that there's something still inside of us that still believes that we can bring or build something for God. We still believe we have something to offer to God. Why? Well, I'm firmly convinced that we don't take the fall seriously. We have a low view of sin. We really believe there's something I can contribute to this whole thing. See, sin makes us blind to the purposes of God. And the Bible says that the commandments of the Lord are, his, are a lamp. They open up the darkness so that we can see God with full accuracy. I got the glasses, and now I see you guys in full accuracy. Sin causes us to become all too committed to our plans and to work all too hard to establish our own self-sovereignty. You see, the problem is sin doesn't always look dangerous to us, does it? At least in the moment, amen? When you're having that third piece of cake, right? And you know, okay, this is probably gluttony, but all you can remember is how good the chocolate tastes. A little more serious when you're lusting at that woman at the mall and you're seeing her beauty, but you're not seeing the danger, the warning signs. That's why the covenants are such grace because we get to see the length and the depth that God goes to open our eyes to our sin for what it actually is, which puts into light how much we depend on God. This whole covenant is God saying to David, you depend on me, not the other way around, David. Amen? The chapter is about God telling David, your desire to build me a house means you've lost sight of your utter dependence on me. God will restore what was lost by sin and he will restore you and what you're most thirsty for. I love what Kurt Thompson says in his genius book called The Soul of Desire. He says this, we don't simply long to live forever. Rather, we long to be known forever. 
ever more deeply and joyfully. In the center of our souls, eternity is not just measured in time, it's measured in depth, a depth that feels infinite. And in this case, it is the depth of our desire to be known that is infinite. David's desire here, and what we'll see here in a minute, his response is to be known. Sin is so deceptive because it causes us to believe that if we give in, it will quench this infinite thirst of the soul to be known. If we just give in, if we look, if we click, it'll somehow quench the thirst that I'm longing for. The reality is, though, then it leaves us broken and dry on the side of the road. David is not only having his eyes open to the promises of eternity, but what we'll see is David is realizing that he knows he is known by God at the deepest level. Do you know you're known by God at the deepest level? His greatest gift, the benefits are awesome. The box is great. His greatest gift is himself. The Apostle Paul in the letter of Galatians knew this, and he said this in chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's just incredible. We have helped to stand against the culture. We're not left with just the impossible commands or the compelling temptation around us because God has inhabited us by his grace and he comes with full range of power. The covenants are not just the technical parts of the Bible. They're proof that God is in control and his promises not just may come to pass, they will come to pass. When God says something, it's not like, well, I hope he comes through with it. It's already happened. That's why the prophets of old can claim the blood of Jesus. Because God, before eternity, said, I'm going to do this. So it's like it already happened. And that's why we'll sit in heaven with Noah and Moses and David and all those great saints, men and women of old. Listen, faith isn't just stepping out on a tree branch hoping it doesn't fall beneath you. No, the covenant promises of of Almighty God mean we're stepping out on a tree trunk of God's unshakable, immovable faithfulness for generations and generations to come. It's not like, God, I hope you come through. It's I'm standing on the faithfulness of God. Amen? So, how do we respond? How does David respond to God? In my very short time here, I want to say that stop settling for the box. Receive the gift. Let's start with prayer. Let's start with prayer. David responded to the gift of God's redemptive plan and prayer with praise. Prayer and praise. Makes my heart happy, the two Ps there. Most of us struggle with prayer because we feel inadequate and Verse 20, David's the same way. He, he says, for you know your servant, David. You know me, God. You know my inner man. You know my struggles. You know my thoughts. 
And then in verse 21, because of your promises and according to your heart, you have brought about all the greatness to make your servant know it. God, you're helping me to see, David saying, you're helping me to see I don't want to settle here. You're helping me to see I can't bring or build you anything. I have limits even as the king. I utterly depend on you. His view of God, his view of redemption is being corrected here. And notice when that happens, David's response to redemption happens in two key ways. Number one, repentance. God, you know me. You see the inner man. You know the thought I had last night. And then number two, he recognizes his limits. I love what, you got to quote a Puritan, you know, in a sermon like this. So the Puritan William uh, Grinnell said this, that prayer is nothing but the promise reversed or God's word turned inside out and formed into an argument and retorted back to God by faith. 1 John 5.14 says, this is the confidence that we have to approach God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. God's promises should shape the way you pray. We repent and David's prayer doesn't get stuck. When we repent, what happens is, and what we see here in David is, when we come to God in repentance, what happens is the, the horizontal then turns vertical. What happened here is then brought to God, and we see his heart lifted up in praise. Second Samuel 7, verse 28 through 29, And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true. You see this change? And you have promised this good thing to your servant, and now, therefore, may it please to you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue before you. For you, O Lord, or God, have spoken, and with blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed. David is saying, O God, your words are true. Theology of the word properly understood never just defines who God is. It, re- it redefines who you are as his child. Theology of the word of God properly understood never just defines who God is. It redefines who we are as his children. God promises to David, I have near and far implications theologically here. And so we see that some of these promises are limited to his son Solomon when, in verse 14 when he commits, as I said earlier, when he commits iniquity and I will discipline him. But then we see passages like uh, in verse 13 and 16, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish his throne forever and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever, telling us that in the line of David, this will occupy the throne forever and reign forever forever. David's theology is redefined and he could never have imagined how far, how wide, how deep the promises of God are. But his response is what our response should be for all believers. When our limitations collide with the promises of God, we can do nothing but prayer and praise. What else can we do? If you think of yourself only as a failed sinner, then you feel disqualified from Christian service and settle for the compromised life. But what brought David 
to prayer and praise and what should bring us to prayer and praise is that we are a justified saint in Christ. Equipped for the battle, capable, adventurous, risky apprenticeship to Jesus on the front lines of God's kingdom. There's hope. The hope is not in the methods or rules. It's not in the box. The hope is a great, gracious Savior who calls us to look beyond the lies of sin to the glory and the great plans of God. He calls us to return to him, to repent from our idolatrous desires. He calls us to step onto the tree trunk of his promises and his faithfulness to remember that God's redemptive plan is love's determined purpose to restore a relationship with him. Our gracious Savior who died for us while we were yet enemies invites us with confidence now, as Hebrew says, to draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and grace in time of need so that we don't settle for the, the casual box of Christianity, that we receive the gift of our redemption, knowing that God has forgiven, made new in Christ, and now our limitations and our sin no longer have to rule our thought life. Amen. Let this redefine us. And even a hundred years, and I'll end here, even a hundred years before the son of David came, God was reminding Israel of the Davidic covenant when he said, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from the time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. Father, we're in awe of your great promises. How else can we respond and get on our knees and thank you? We thank you for this rich mercy and grace. And so, Father, help us to step out of the box today and to receive the fullness of salvation. And I would even be so bold to ask, God, that you would restore the joy of our salvation today. And for those of us and maybe you're hearing the gospel message for the first time, by grace, would you open their hearts and reveal yourself to them? In Jesus' name, amen.